Howdy, everybody. This is Volts for June 1st, 2022. Volts Podcast, Danny Cullenward on California's shaky climate plans. I'm your host, David Roberts. California has long been known nationally and internationally as a leader on climate policy. The sheer scale of its economy and the stringency of its emissions targets have made it a model for other states with climate ambitions. As a role model, its successes and failures reverberate far beyond its borders. So it matters a great deal whether California has a practical plan to meet its aspirations. This year offers something of an answer and it's not great. Every five years, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, issues a scoping plan laying out how it intends to meet the state's targets. The last one, in 2017, raised serious questions about whether the state's cap-and-trade system could do the emission reduction work that the state planned to require of it through 2030. This year's draft scoping plan, there's still time for public comment, Answers none of those questions, and instead, looking out to 2045, raises new questions about whether carbon dioxide removal can do the work the state plans to require of it. That's a lot of questions. To hash through them and get a sense of just how prepared California is to meet its climate targets, I called up Danny Cullenward, a longtime policy analyst in the state. Volts fans will remember him from one of the very first Volts posts. He is currently policy director at the nonprofit Carbon Plan and a research fellow at American University's Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy. Cullen Ward and I discussed what policies have worked to reduce emissions in California, whether the cap and trade program can do what's asked of it, why the current scoping plan leans so heavily on carbon dioxide removal and whether there's still time to improve the plan before it's locked in for five years. Without any further ado, Danny Cullenward, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Danny, you were the uh, first interview I ever did for volts <laughs> a couple of years ago and as far as i know you now you're the first return guest and the first to pivot to audio this is this is fun yeah the first to pivot to audio i'm sure this is the kind of accomplishment you used to dream about as a young as a young man if i were still an academic it would be going on my cv <laughs> All right. So the purpose of our conversation here today is to get a handle on California and climate, sort of um, where it's been, where it says it's going, and whether it is in fact prepared to go where it says it's going. Before we get there, though, let's do just a little sort of scene setting, a little background you know, I think everybody hears about laws coming out of California all the time. California's doing this, doing that, and it becomes a little bit of a blur. So let's just sort of clarify what are the targets to which California is committed by statute and sort of what are its other targets which are less statutory? <laughs> I think that's the formal legal definition. That's, that's great. <laughs> semi, semi-statutory. Well, so there's a reason people talk about California and, and also why people, I think, sometimes get confused about exactly what's going on. And the reason that it, it matters is California was one of the first states to move forward on some of the macro climate policy issues. 
And uh, many states are either copying or learning from its experience. So the, what it does turns out to matter a lot to, to sort of what other people start to do. I think the, the story, you know, begins in earnest in climate policy with the passage of AB 32, our famous climate law, back in 2006. Under Arnold. Under Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, and a progressive Democratic legislature came together, found common ground on this bill, which did a couple of things. It set a target to reduce emissions back down to 1990 emissions by the year 2020. And it empowered the climate regulator, the California Air Resources Board, with the authority to undertake new regulations, including a cap and trade program, uh, as well as to coordinate with other agencies like our clean energy regulators that had already been pushing on renewables in the past. And that sort of set up the meta framework and delegated the planning exercise to this regulator. So that's target number one. Target number two is uh, about a decade later, in fact, one of the, the same principal legislators, then Senator Fran Pavley, um, led a bill called SB 32, which codified a target of 40% below 1990 levels by the year 2030. So both of those are statutory targets. They're legally binding. The regulator is obligated to plan to and meet those targets. And then in 2018, we had the passage of SB 100, our zero carbon grid bill, uh, that was was much celebrated at the signing ceremony for that bill. Governor uh, Jerry Brown issued an executive order that said, let's go carbon neutral by the year 2045 on a statewide basis as well. And it's under the auspices of, of that executive order and, and some more recent executive order and, and direction activity from the current governor, Gavin Newsom, that the state of California is thinking about its long-term climate goals. So we have statutory target for 2030, and we have non-binding aspirational executive orders for the post-2030 period. So just to be clear, those executive orders are... Um Hortatory, is that the word? <laughs> they're, they're meant to inspire action, but they have no legal force. There's no penalty. That's right. You, you can't create new policies or programs from those executive orders that aren't separately authorized by existing law. Right. And it's really easy to say that that's dumb. It means they're nothing. On the other hand, the statutory targets we have followed from earlier executive orders. So there's, there's a history in this state and in many other jurisdictions. You, you set the aspirational goal and you codify the parts of it you can, you sort of push ahead and you iterate and ratchet. So I don't want to discount the importance of that, but the, the practical takeaway is that nothing can be done to implement those targets other than talking and using existing authorities. Mm -hmm. You can't create new law with an executive order. Right. So the legislature will have to follow up on that. So the first target you mentioned was by 2020, uh, that was return to 1990 levels. Did California hit that? Not only hit it, uh, hit it a few years early. So it's it's a good story, you know, and, and getting down to 1990 levels, maybe, maybe two things to say for, for your listeners. 1990 is a baseline that was really common to talk about, you know, 15, 20 years ago. We now talk about baselines like 2005. That's just sort of an artifact of when people locked into all of this. It doesn't sound like a particularly impressive target. In some respects, that's true. But at the time it was set, you know, we were looking at, at emissions going ever up yeah. and the idea that they would flatline and come back down a little bit. Um, was actually really ambitious at the time. And the state met it a couple of years early, which is great. We could talk about why. You know, we, we got a little lucky. We also worked really hard and we got there a couple of years early. Let's briefly talk about it. So, I, you know, I'd like to get a sense of sort of there's these two families of policies in, in California that have been passed in pursuit of these targets. There is the cap and trade system that was uh, set up, as you say, by the by the Arnold bill. And then alongside that, there's this sort of more sector-specific rules and regulations and investments 
sort of, uh, I guess, what you would group under industrial policy. Sort of, so you have this sort of price-based mechanism on one hand, and then these sort of more old-fashioned regulatory tools on the other hand. So what has worked to put California ahead of schedule for its 2020 goal? Maybe the other thing to mention here is for these macro state targets, like the 2020 target and the 2030 target, AB 32, that original climate law, asked the regulator to come up with what's called a scoping plan. So every five years, the regulator is supposed to put together an official strategy. We're in the middle of a process for updating that strategy. Mm -hmm. And so you can look to those strategy documents to answer your question. And the first such document that was put together basically said that the expectation was that about 80% of the work to get to our 2020 target would be done by regulations and what today we, we now call things like industrial policy. That was in what year the first scoping plan came out? To? Uh, it should have been December of 2008. 2008. So it was end of 2008. Uh, and the state said 80% regs, 20% cap and trade. And that's a combination of policies that I think reflects the historical role that traditional sector-specific regulations and industrial policy have played in cutting emissions. Think renewable portfolio standard. Right. Think CARB's leadership uh, on mobile source emissions, trying to set rules for cleaner cars. Those are the kinds of efforts that have historically delivered the tons. And the initial plan was about 80% in that traditional route and put on top of that an economy-wide carbon price that would do some of the lifting, but maybe not the lion's share. And did that prediction, I guess, in 2008 turn out to more or less accurately reflect what happened through 2020? That's a place where I think there's a, there's a little bit of nuance. So if you look at the data in terms of how we actually got to our target early, it, it turns out that there was a substantial boost from the financial crisis, right? So like the world oh. economy collapsed and <laughs> right. people stopped driving. We didn't have like a boom time. Yes. And that exogenously pushed emissions lower. Right. When you look at the sectors where the work has been done, it turns out that you know, we struggled to keep pace in the transportation sector, um, struggled to keep pace in the industrial sector, but our electricity sector decarbonized much more quickly than uh, even the optimistic plans in the, the original scoping plan suggested. And that's a combination of the fact that renewables and efficiency have performed in some respects better than we thought and moved faster than we hoped. It's also a reflection of the fact that at the time the plans were set, California was importing a lot of coal power. And it's a long story, but they eventually created a process by which the utilities in the state stopped importing that coal power. So we shed that liability from our books. And it's that electricity sector transition moving off coal and starting to move on to clean energy, which is just beginning to really show up in the inventory. That's where the real progress has come. The rest of the sectors have, have struggled um, and electricity is most of the work. Got it. And so you hit the 2020 target early. The 2030 target is 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. Is California on track to hit that target? I don't think there's a case to be made that we're anything close to it right now. I think it's entirely feasible and doable, but I, I don't think we're on that track right now. And part of the reason why reflects a pretty big shift in the state's official strategy for its climate policy. So I told you that the first scoping plan in 2008 said 80% regulations, 20% markets. Right. Um, to make a, a long story short, there was a crisis in the cap and trade program starting in about 2016. The, the program was only authorized through the end of 2020. There was a crisis about the state of supply and demand in the program, the upcoming expiration of its clear legal authority. And that was ultimately resolved with a bill that passed in 2017 to extend the cap-and-trade program to 2030. So now we have the authority for cap-and-trade aligned to our state goal. Right. I remember that fight. That was Brown, wasn't it? Who, who? That was right. And I think it's fair to say Governor Brown had a singular role uh, in, in that bill and that approach. 
So the bill passes and extends the authority it requires for state constitutional reasons that needed a two-thirds vote, which is extraordinarily difficult to pull off anywhere. Even in California? Even in anywhere. And it, it led to a number of concessions to industry. So it shut down the ability of our local air pollution regulators to regulate CO2. It shut down the ability, at least temporarily, of the state climate regulator to regulate CO2 emissions from the oil and gas sector, including refining and production, other than through existing policies and the cap-and-trade program. And it led to a compromise in the implementation of the cap-and-trade program that made it a not particularly strict policy. Now, if you want to make a plan that's 80% regs and 20% cap-and-trade, a not particularly strict policy can maybe deliver that. Right. But that's not what the climate regulator decided to do. So they decided in, uh, in 2017 in their, their most recent scoping plan. Like just in the wake of the program being renewed through 2030, right? That's right. So the cap and trade legislation said you got to finish your scoping plan and, and here's some of the constraints on that planning process. And in that plan, the, the regulator uh, adopted a set of policies or a set of strategies that would put that emphasis much closer to 50-50 for mm. the year 2030. So it's a pretty big departure. And if, if you ask an economist, that sounds like a good thing. <laughs> and if you ask a political scientist or, or somebody in the policy scene what's going on, there's a lot more questions. Right. This is a classic real-world running of this sort of experiment, uh, this long-running sort of dispute. You know, I'm sure our listeners are probably familiar with the basic outlines, but then you you know you sort of have economists who are like pricing is the most efficient way, Uber Alice, absolutely the cheapest way to do this and most effective. And then you have sort of people from the political realm, you might say a political scientist, who point to, well, in the past, what has worked? And in the past, what has worked are these more blunt weapons, these sort of uh, regulations and mandates and investments and things like that. So it's it's interesting that California is really running a real-time experiment. So now in 2017 for its scoping plan, it says we're going to put these on more or less 50-50 basis. So let me pause you right there. Yes. And then here's maybe the most interesting part of this. So the plan is settled at the end of 2017. The rulemaking to implement the program doesn't finish till 2018. So ask me in 2017 what I think about this. I say, I might have some concerns about the balance. I don't know if that's the wisest approach, but you can absolutely design a program to deliver in that way if that's what you want to do. Right. And we can come back to this to the extent this is interesting, but the, the design of the program in 2018 was a pretty universal sort of shift in a direction of not really addressing the supply-demand balance in the program very explicitly. And you know, I think it's fair to say some decisions were made that led to consequences. And, and these consequences were warned about a, a bunch of us in the either academic or nonprofit world raised concerns about there being too many allowances in the program to get to our goal. Uh, my colleague Chris Bush and Justin Gillis um, even had a, an op-ed in the New York Times. Like, for you to get an op-ed in the New York Times about cap-and-trade minutiae is... Like, <laughs> yeah, allowance numbers. It's a pretty rarefied thing. Um, <laughs> Make a long story short, the, the critics who raised concerns about this said, wow, we've modeled the program. We think it's going to end up with too many allowances. And, and so just what, let me just pause there just to spell that out a little bit. Yeah. So for, for listeners, you know, you need an allowance to emit a ton of carbon. Yep. And the idea is if you get too many allowances in the system, they just become cheap. You can start buying them up and hoarding them. Basically, if there are too many allowances flooding the system, it removes what incentive there is to reduce emissions. And instead, you can just start buying and hoarding cheap allowances and yeah. protect yourself. And because 
to steal a little bit of your thunder here, but, but because California allows banking, which is buying allowances and saving them for later, this opens the possibility that regulated entities in California can take advantage of these super cheap oversupplied allowances, buy a bunch, create a big reserve of them, and then when or if prices ever go up, they're just going to have these giant stores of cheap allowances. So even if the price goes up, they'll still be sort of insulated from having to take action. That's the worry about too many allowances. Yeah. And I like to analogize that I don't want to in any way cast aspersions on making these programs work right, which again, I think is something that is a nice idea. And I work on every day, despite writing a book about why it's unlikely to work. <laughs> but, but think about it as a cap and trade a game is a, is a game of musical chairs. And so the, the players, that's the pollution, the chairs, that's the number of allowances in the program. Right. And players can exit the game if regulations are successful or technology improves. And the question is, how many chairs should you have in the game? And if the regulator guesses wrong or gets the number wrong for whatever reason, you can end up with too many chairs. And the, the basic rule of a cap and trade program is a player's got to have a chair at the end of every period. You got to have the right number of allowances to match your emissions. And, and if you don't, you're out. You got to figure out a way to, to close that circle. So, you know, it's really hard, turns out, to estimate how many emissions you think uh, are going to need to be covered in a cap and trade program. You have to guess at the future of the economy. You have to guess at the performance of each sector. You got to guess at macroeconomic conditions. You got to guess how fast you think the grid is going to decarbonize. It's hard to do right. Let's pause here to make a note that the original economic attraction of cap and trade and of pricing carbon generally is supposed to be that you don't have to make those, you don't have to guess those things, that the price will do the work for you, that the price will sort of reflect our aggregated information about those things if it's just allowed to run. But it turns out, you know, as you point out in your book and as many other people have pointed out, if you've got a big system that covers the energy sector, you're not going to take chances. <laughs> you're not, you're in, in practice, you're not going to let it do whatever the market does to it, right? It's energy. It's too core to the economy to leave it up to that. So what ends up happening is regulators end up fiddling and fiddling and messing and shaping and capping, you know, and, and they end up designing it to the point that it just becomes a sort of backdoor command and control mechanism which was the whole the whole point was to get away from that so it's like you end up with the worst of both worlds somehow yeah i mean i i, I want to tell you a positive story about like how to fix it and all that at some point but it, it is you know ridiculously complex and i think the main insight is that like when, when you ask an economist about this they say well you don't have to worry about this the reason is they're thinking as though you had this policy in isolation in an idealized setting. Right. And in the real world, you only ever see these instruments evolve alongside strong complementary policies. That's the label we use. We call the things that do most of our work complementary policies, <laughs> right. um, reflecting the sort of economist worldview on that. But, you know, good economists have been thinking about this for a while. I mean, there's many to, to reference, but uh, Severin Bornstein at UC Berkeley and his colleagues wrote a really great paper looking at the California program and saying, wow, I mean, there's so many policies that directly affect emissions subject to the program. You know, there's just, there's only a small piece of the puzzle that is responsive to these prices. 
And you, know, you end up trading, as we say in the book, you end up trading the residual. And there's more volatility the more work these other policies are doing. There's also more political stability the more you rely on these other policies. So everything kind of points into a direction where the, the program looks bigger than it is and is also really complicated to manage empirically and effectively. So that's, I'm trying to be sympathetic here. Like it's hard to do it right. I'm not saying, oh, everybody screws it up if they just listen to the smart people. It's actually really hard to do. Yeah, because you're you have all these other complementary policies that are reducing emissions, but every little bit that they reduce emissions has an implicit effect on the pricing in the in the cap and trade system. So you sort of have these two symbiotic things, one of which you're directly controlling and one of which you're sort of obliquely controlling. Yeah, and you end up having to. It just seems like, and you're right, we're, we're perhaps being too negative too early here, but it just seems like save it, Dave. A giant Rube Goldberg mechanism created just so you can say you did something market-like. <laughs> the final product bears virtually no resemblance to any market or market mechanisms, but it's just like the, the symbolic value of saying we did a market thing has prompted all this work and complexity just to, to make this thing appear to be playing a big role. Okay, I got I got to push back on you. That is both too cynical and not cynical enough. So so here's here's the optimistic case for this. You actually want markets to work if you want to deliver some cost-effective reductions. There's value in having markets discover cost-effective reductions. And in the real world, if you manage this carefully given all of these constraints and all these concerns, there's actually value in that secondary supporting role. So I think you, you sort of articulated a case, oh this is all smoke and mirrors like it's actually could be important to do this right. Admittedly, at a lesser scale than the textbook econ solution suggests. More explicitly as a sopping up the remainder policy rather than a sort of main workhorse policy. Yeah. And, you know, if politics improve over time, if, you know, industry wants to come to the table to talk about cost effective ways to get things done, it becomes a venue where you could have that conversation and have that conversation potentially be real. The more cynical take, and this is something uh, I expect we'll come back to, is that the presence of a market-based program that can be described as an idealized outcome also becomes a shield against reform. Yes. And people will point to it and they say, you already have this economically efficient program that's designed to do all the work, so you don't need that next industrial policy. You don't need that higher ambition. Why would you remove allowances from the market and raise consumer prices when it's already designed perfectly? It becomes a very dangerous thing when when the idealized case is made, and that's typically made by industry and by regulators when they're sympathetic to either the concerns of industry or the challenges of reform that I think are, are practical and real. Right. So, so if you have in place this system that you are claiming is an economically efficient way of mopping up emissions, and then you propose some further sector-specific industrial policy, it's very easy for industry to come along and say, no, you don't need that. We already have, look, you already said you have this perfectly economically efficient plan in place. Why would you need to do anything else if you truly have this plan in place? And just for a second, if they're right, if that program was designed perfectly and you're not worried about long-term dynamics, you just just assume a, a relatively simple econ framework here, they might have a point. And the problem is the programs are rarely designed that sufficiently. And you also have all sorts of other market failures that sector-specific policies might want to address. But they, they do make a point, which, again, is really compelling to lots of people and, and is worth paying attention to. You know, if you did this right, it would take away some of the rationale for some of the sector-specific work. 
And I think it's a mistake to say, oh, that's not a legitimate argument. From a certain point of view, it, it can make sense. The tell is that we've rarely designed programs that are strict enough to deliver on that outcome. Yes, yes. This is the key, I think. You can imagineer a program <laughs> that does all these things they say it does, but it's it doesn't seem like a coincidence that no one's been able to implement a program like that in the real world. In the real world, these programs are always compromised and oversupplied with allowances and with all these blind spots. Like this is the whole sort of political economy point, right? Yeah. And, and just again, not to put too fine a point on it, but like, that's okay if you work with it and you understand it and you, and you put it in the right size box and you say, this is the, the classic example is, would you rather California have a $30 price on carbon or a $0 price on carbon? And I will take the 30, please. <laughs> but I don't want to pretend that 30 gets me to net zero. Right. And I want to hold both of those ideas in my head at the same time. Right, right. Okay, so this brings us to the present. We um, California is, in 2017, uh, sort of shifted its emphasis to a sort of half-and-half half industrial policy and cap-and-trade program road to the 2030 target. It is not currently on track to that target because of some of the large and still unaddressed problems in the cap-and-trade side of things. That's where we stand now. So then into this situation enters the current scoping plan, which was just released. I guess they do it every five years. They did 2017. So the 2022 scoping plan was just released. Just to clarify, it's the draft that's been released. So oh. this is the only opportunity for public comment. It's, it's not locked in, but we'll, we'll talk about what's going on. Right. That's important later. Uh, the draft scoping plan for 2022 has been released. Now, you might think, given what we've discussed so far, that the 2022 scoping plan would be singularly obsessed with whether <laughs> the cap-and-trade program can in fact do 50% of the work, can in fact do what they want it to do, given that A, there's a lot of longstanding, very loud, persistent critiques of that program, and two, that it doesn't, doesn't seem to be working currently because they're not on track. You would think that the scoping plan would be preoccupied with how can we tighten up cap and trade so that it really does this work we say it's going to do. That turns out not to be <laughs> what the scoping plan does at all. In fact, the scoping plan, as you pointed out in a piece you just wrote uh, last week, devotes all of six pages to the 2030 goal, which is currently not on track to be met. And as far as I can tell, does nothing to revise the basic shape of the cap and trade program and doesn't really, as far as I can tell, address any of the longstanding critiques of the cap and trade program. In other words, this scoping plan tells us very little about how California is going to go from not on track to meeting 2030 to on track. Uh, is that fair? Yep, that's fair. So this is, um, you know, over 200 page planning document. There are six pages that address cap and trade on the 2030 target. That's wild. That's wild. It's only eight years away, Danny. Yeah, I know. They don't even discuss the, you, know, you referenced the, the concerns and criticisms. Let me just give you just a couple of statistics. So if you look at the official greenhouse gas inventory by which we measure progress towards our various targets, the most recent pace of reductions is you know, about four and a half million tons per year we're reducing. And, and that's good. Um, it, it's something to celebrate. 
uh, but we need to increase that by almost a fourfold rate to get on track for 2030 to get to our existing statutory target. So what, like 16, what's the target number? The target number, we're, we're in the low 400s, 400 million tons CO2 equivalent per year, and we need to get down to about 259 million per year by 2030. We need to be falling at a rate, like if you take our 2021 provisional estimate, we need to be falling at about 16.7 million tons per year, and we're falling sort of four to five million tons per year. So, you know, there's a gap there that is absolutely in the, like the technical world, that's an achievable, that we can do that. We know how to do that if we really want to do that, but there's a gap. Second thing I want to introduce is we actually have a lot of evidence. We talked about, you know, back when the cap and trade regulations were finalized in 2018, there was a big debate and there was some criticism. So the the people who wrote their numbers down in public documents who said, here's how many extra allowances we expect to see um, at the end of the third compliance period. We just got data uh, six months ago on that. And based on those allowances, those extra allowances, we have concerns that the program maybe can't get us to 2030 on track with our goals. So the people who did that, it, it turns out they got like pretty much exactly right. And we saw the surplus allowances at those levels. So I'm the vice chair of the advisory and oversight committee for this program. And speaking just in my personal capacity today uh, with you, we in our annual report for the advisory report looked at the number of extra allowances and there are about 321 million that came into the post-2020 market. In the 2017 scoping plan, which did this you know, first analysis of how to get to 2030 and, and how big the, the cap and trade needed to be to get there, they estimated around 236 million tons of reductions would need to come from cap and trade. So we've banked more allowances there. That is to say, private parties bought and are holding on to more allowances than the entire cumulative reductions expected from this program in the last plan. So when I tell you that only six pages sort of hint at this stuff and they don't even reference the advisory reports, the, the data, the documents, the public, you know, peer-reviewed papers, you know, that should really strike you. So just to put a fine point on that, regulated entities could get all the way through 2030 using nothing but already banked allowances, not making any further reductions at all. Is that, is that fair? That's a possible outcome. I don't want to say that's the most likely outcome. It depends on sort of your view about both the number of players uh, in, in the game. We, we know the number of chairs in the regulations, if right. you're thinking about this as a musical chairs game. And that is possible. Uh, and so my colleague, Dallas Bertrand, who's the, the chair of the advisory committee, was quoted several times in the press saying, that's a possibility. You know, it's wickedly complicated to try and model it all, but basically we're talking about a surplus of 321 million when you're looking at creating kind of a deficit of 236 million. So it's it's the wrong direction for sure. And even if they only do half the emission reductions needed, that's still super bad. I mean, ideally you'd have few to none uh <laughs> excess allowances floating around in your system, right? If you wanted emissions to fall roughly in line with program caps, you wouldn't expect to see very large banks emerge, or at least you'd want to have some long-term continuity in the program. I want to flag the cap and trade program is only authorized through the end of 2030. Right. We'll, we'll get to this, like what's going on in Washington. Washington has authority to do both climate and cap and trade 
way out farther into the distance. And so there's some, some really interesting issues that come up. You might look at our market and say, if we're just trying to solve for 2030, we have way too many allowances. Right. You could also look at our market and say, well, if we were trying to solve for also 2045 or 2050, you know, maybe it's appropriate to be in the kinds of conditions we're in. The problem with that statement is that we don't have the legal authority to do that. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this, but it, it proved impossible to get a simple majority vote on just a climate target last year. And you need a two-thirds vote to make the cap-and-trade program also follow. Yes. And given the sort of harrowing concessions Brown had to make to get that first two-thirds vote, uh, one can only imagine what would be required to get it past 2030. Yeah. And it's tough because, again, if you're, if you're a proponent of these systems, and again, I want to support like using them well and right, that's a good thing. You know, but you're probably also pretty challenged by what's increasingly sounding like doublespeak about this from the regulators, because think of it this way. If this if this conversation gets deferred a couple of years and we're having a conversation about what a two-thirds vote looks like in 2024 or 2025, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to be an even harder conversation if there's a big bank of allowances and relatively low prices. And you say, well, what if we extended the program and like massively increased prices? <laughs> it's not like that challenge gets easier by putting it off. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of another aspect of the political economy of these programs is they need to be able to get more expensive. (laughs) That needs to at least be an open option. You know, and they're not working correctly unless they occasionally get more expensive. But no politician wants to go out and propose a reform explicitly to raise prices <laughs> on, on people. It's just... Uh, and that is also why when people declare victory on the backs of the idealized perception of these programs, it becomes even harder to advance climate progress because now you're not only you know stuck trying to convince a reformer to make that argument, but you have you know often the government and usually major industries saying, actually, it's fine the way it is. Right. So you know the number of people who are sort of against the climate reform trajectory increases, including political stakeholders who are just trying to think about staying in office or you know managing competitiveness. It's it's tough. And so tell us also, there's a the, you found a, a discrepancy uh, about how the sort of baseline emissions scenario is calculated that also looks like it's padding the results slightly. Can you explain that real quick? Yeah. So if if you want to model the role of the cap and trade program, and I, I told you that, you know, it was expected to require almost almost half of the work from cap and trade in the mm-hmm. previous 2017 scoping plan, you need to model what you think business as usual emissions are going to be given all of the other non-cap and trade policies. So what's the clean electricity policy, the vehicles policy? When you add that all up, before you think about the effect of cap and trade, what does that all look like? Right. So in other words, what is the remainder yeah. that cap and trade has to wipe up. If you just pretended we didn't have cap and trade and you had a good model that could give you a crystal ball outlook for the emissions trajectory without cap and trade, mm-hmm. these scoping plans, are, they, they say cap and trade will close the gap. Right. So you basically want to model what, it, what you've got without cap and trade and whatever else you need to do, that's the role that's implicitly assigned to cap and trade. So if you model that, you can we can have a conversation about how, how big this needs to be. And so in the six pages, there's some discussion about, well, we've got a new scenario, a new version of that line for emissions, and it's lower. So we're not going to need as much from cap and trade. So that's saying we're going to get more out of these conventional industrial policy policies yep. than we thought. And to be clear, it's not like there's a bunch of new policies. There's a, there's a couple of things that have, have come online in the last few years, but it's not like they're proposing a bunch of new policies. They're sort of saying, since the last time we checked in, we have a few more policies and the outlook looks pretty good. 
so that sounds like good news. And, and if it's true, it is. Vis-a-vis uh, <laughs> -vis reducing the reliance on cap and trade, I, I want to flag that does not fix the problem of having you know a lot of allowances when you want the program to cut emissions. But right, but the less work you're asking it to do, the less the more manageable the problem becomes. Right, right. So that sounds great. And so I decided I'd, I'd download the spreadsheets because that's the, the kind of person I am. And I started looking <laughs> at the spreadsheets, and I was like, something's not right here. And I pulled the inventory data from the again from the climate regulator. They say what's the, the pollution look like in our state uh, from the climate side? And the scenario that is being offered as evidence for we're, we're doing better, our emissions are going to be lower, and so we're going to rely less on cap and trade, don't worry. That scenario is like 12, 15, all the way up to potentially 27 million tons per year lower than the actual inventory data where we have it. <laughs> so the, the story is like completely inconsistent with the regulator's own data. And it's worse, I, I dug into the sector-specific totals because like, you know, you could imagine that the outlook for transportation is different post-pandemic. I work from home now. I didn't used right, to. Right, right. Um, no, the difference is in the building sector, yeah. which does not change, and the industrial sector. Which, which is the one that's hardest to get at and slowest to change and has least policy aimed at it. So the, all the modeling in this this plan is is done with a proprietary analysis through through consultants. There's, there's not a lot of documentation. And on this scenario in particular, there's really nothing to clue us into what happens. So all I can do is sort of hold up a mirror and say that, the numbers are off, and the delta between the story and the inventory numbers is bigger than the purported improvement in 2030 that should make us comfortable that we don't have to worry about the cap-and-trade program anymore. Right. The upshot of which is just that California is proposing to rely on cap-and-trade even more than it says it is <laughs> by a big chunk. I would summarize it slightly differently. We don't really know what's going on. Nothing has really changed in terms of the policy portfolio, and no one's proposing to make any changes now. The, the regulator, to their credit, they've said, hey, you know, we're willing to have a conversation about the cap-and-trade program. We'd just like to have it next year. <laughs> and so there's nothing here, and it, I, you know, nobody's affirmatively changing, and it's not like you know, the role is like bigger or something like that. It, it might be smaller, but we're still not having a conversation about how do we more than triple our emission reductions given a plan that relied about half on this program and evidence that this program is not designed to perform in that way right now. And again, for proponents, if, if you're somebody who wants to see this program play a bigger role and do a bigger job, you also know you got to think about a two-thirds vote in the legislature to extend it past 2030, which would Ooh. fundamentally change the way you would answer those questions, right? right? If you're planning for 2030 versus for 2045 or 2050. You know, in retrospect, just making it 10 years at a time was not great. <laughs> was not smart, uh, which Washington learned from. So so let's briefly, um, before we move on to the other parts of the scoping plan, let's briefly talk about Washington because... Uh, Volts listeners will know that Washington has recently passed a whole raft of great clean energy and climate policies, a bunch of sector-specific stuff. But alongside that, Washington is proposing to create a cap-and-trade system more or less mirroring California's and to connect it to California's, to become part of California's market, which, you know, uh, some folks might remember way back in the day when California was first setting up its market, this was always kind of the thought that it was going to be a big West Coast thing, that there were going to be all these players attached to California's market, but they sort of like dropped off one at a time, leaving California and Quebec now. That's right. Uh, Ontario later joined for a, a brief period. Very random, but then Ontario bailed too, didn't But they're not there anymore. Yep. 
right? So now it's California and Quebec, but Washington is proposing to join. So, you know, from my hometown point of view, the dysfunctions of California's cap and trade system very much matter for Washington. So spell that out a little bit. Like, what is the danger that Washington faces here? There's a couple of things. So one thing to say is, you know, again, there are a few sources of climate policy and climate institutional leadership at the subnational level in the United States. And, and California is one of the really big players in that space. And so even when people set out to do their own things, they often borrow or learn from and adapt various things we've done. So it's always important to think about what we're up to, not because we're the center of the universe, but because a lot of what's happening is either following or learning from things we're doing. One of the reasons that smaller jurisdictions that come along and want to do something good on climate will copy California's work is that California sort of legendarily has a robust administrative capacity. <laughs> you know, one of our favorite subjects here at Volts. And specifically, CARB is sort of unique. So maybe just say a quick word about why California, you know, what is it about California's system that enables it to put together these things out of scratch such that other people sort of come along behind and want to copy it. I think that's exactly it. So we, we have, you know, large and reasonably well-sophisticated regulatory bodies in a number of spheres. And in fact, one of our problems is we have so many that coordination can be an important challenge. So we'll come back to this actually, because, you know, part of the, the flavor here is California, there was a debate uh, when AB 32 was being set up in 2006. Should we give one agency the quarterbacking role, the lead right. Right, in all of this, or should we distribute it across agencies? California went with the, the sort of quarterbacking model where the Air Resources Board is primarily in charge of this. Although, as we, we mentioned, a lot of the progress has been made in electricity and you should be looking at our utilities regulator for that. Yes, yes. But it is worth saying that CARB mm -hmm. is huge Big. and powerful relative to virtually anything you find in almost any other state. Almost anywhere else. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, there's scientists, there's engineers, there's lawyers, there's a big administrative capacity. Which like Washington does not have, just, just doesn't have the size and money to replicate that. And that's exactly right. And so what's so interesting right now about subnational American politics is, is I think we're seeing much higher climate ambitions become popular at different times. And so you're seeing sort of higher watermarks for the level of policy goals and integrity. Right. But many of the states like Washington, where I, I would describe, frankly, your current goals as better than California's, but y'all don't have a regulator that has the same capacity. Right. And so it's not just that people are looking for inspiration. And let me contrast this really quickly. California says, let's have a zero carbon electricity grid, a renewable portfolio standard with a technology neutral backend. Let's you know amp that stuff up on steroids. Many states have utility regulators that are capable and sophisticated enough to emulate those policies if they want. So that policy can diffuse without worrying too much about institutional capacity. Right. Not so with the cap and trade program, which is phenomenally complex. And I mean, no disrespect to the regulators in Washington state, but there's just far fewer per capita and total. <laughs> right. So the, you know, the significance of this is that you literally need essentially hegemonic regulatory actors to govern these systems. And this is the opposite. You and I have talked a little bit about the East Coast states and their cap-and-trade program called REGI, where they, they're fairly egalitarian and everybody sort of cooperates on an equal basis. This is really a, a centralized infrastructure that, you know, California is the biggest market by far. The size of your emissions footprint is less than a sixth of our market. <laughs> so, you know, you are a smaller player in economic terms. And that means both the capacity difference between the two states and the relative economic importance of our decisions and situation have enormous influence over whatever you all decide you want to do. 
Right. And so, and so we don't have the, you know, Washington doesn't have the administrative capacity to cook up a system like this from scratch. And, but does it have the administrative capacity even to manage a mirror of California's? I, you know, I don't want to comment directly on that because I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt it. And I also, you know, personally couldn't run one of these by myself. So I, I don't want to sort of stick myself <laughs> in their shoes. Look, copying the DNA of the structure of the market, you know, should be feasible. You know, the the system is called the Western Climate Initiative. And there's actually a private corporation called WCI Inc. that runs a lot of the things like the auction platform, the, the various mechanics and pieces of this. Those are services that can be contracted for at, you know, at reasonable costs. So I think there's a case to be made that a lot of this can be done. The question is, do people want to design around a common program? Do they want to design around similar programs that are managed separately? And there's a lot of politics that go into that. I don't mm -hmm. think that administrative capacity is the necessarily the biggest problem. I would not say it would be fair to say, you know, out of whole cloth with no example to learn from, could the relatively small Washington Department of Ecology <laughs> stand up a program completely on their own in a vacuum? That would be a much bigger lift. But the question of what might they design, given the example experience, text, and operating experience of all of the different players, including California, that have worked with these systems, I think is very different. Right. So then let's get back to the substance, which is if California's program is flooded is oversupplied with allowances such that it has this incredible slack in it. What is the danger for Washington if it hooks up with that program? So the danger is that there are potentially too many allowances here such that, you know, if Washington were to design a strict standalone cap and trade program, it would be a more robust program. It would almost certainly have higher prices. And so if you're a regulated industry in Washington, you're probably pretty pro-market link because that means you can hook into our market and, you know, try and buy some of those surplus allowances, which will tend to raise our prices, but will tend to depress the prices up in Washington. So it'd have the political benefit of reducing prices. It would have the environmental consequence of potentially our excess allowances um, rendering your program unable to meet your own goals, mm -hmm. uh, depending on how carefully those issues are balanced. And that's why this link issue, which I want to be like very careful not to prejudge, it's so complicated because the design questions all interact with the decision around, do you link to California? Right. And does California either reform or extend its program or not? Right. And is the size of Washington's market enough to materially impact that level of oversupply or are we kind of a, a drop in the bucket there? You know, it's a great question. I've seen some initial efforts to start to model the program, but but I haven't seen anybody directly grapple with that question. So given several hundred million surplus allowances and, you know, statewide emissions on the neighborhood of 60 million tons per year up there, what kinds of deltas and credit flows would you know, lead to consistent outcomes or inconsistent outcomes. I don't think, I, I get the sense people are studying that privately, but I haven't mm. seen a lot of good public-facing analysis on that. Right. So, so the danger here is just Washington replicates California's system and then thereby inadvertently replicates California's inability to hit its target because of the weak cap-and-trade system. Yeah, so that's the like the climate nightmare. And then the like super, you know, cynical, scary version of this is, isn't this better than nothing? And I think the answer to that question is still yes. So we're in that spectrum of like better than nothing <laughs> and actually on track with what we, we're all trying to do. Can we land this thing? That's where the whole climate space lives, isn't it? That delta between 
what we ought to do and what we can do. Yeah. And, and what's, I, what's better than nothing versus what's needed. And I think what's so complicated about this is like, you know, we've probably lost two thirds of your listeners just talking about <laughs> cap and trade. And like here, you actually have to get this far. We're not, we're almost to the point where you're going to have a conversation about what your opinion should be about this. Right. And that's really different than like, I would like a hundred percent clean electricity or zero emission vehicles where it, it, putting aside the fact we've had a lot of problems trying to actually do that well and robustly and in a big tent fashion, it's a lot easier to tell a regular person who's motivated to fix climate, you know, what direction they should be pushing in here. Right. Or just more, you know, more EVs like EV good, clean energy, good. You know. yeah, yeah, exactly. These sectoral policies are very sellable or explicable in a way that cap and trade is not. Yeah. And again, I think if we were orienting this conversation around like, you know, trying to have a more honest conversation about what are the options and the consequences, it might be easier to do some of that. And part of what we're dealing with right now is just the complete inability to just speak plainly about what's going on, which only makes it harder to have the sort of pro-climate conversation. Right. So now that we've lost two thirds of listeners, let's leave behind cap and trade momentarily and talk about the rest of this scoping plan, returning to the scoping plan. So there's 200 pages of it. Six of those pages deal with the looming 2030 deadline for which the state is not on track. So then there's all the rest of it. So a lot of the rest of the scoping plan turns to this aspirational 2045 target of carbon neutrality. And it proposes to get to carbon neutrality, not exclusively, but a big chunk of getting to carbon neutrality in 2045, it proposes to do via carbon dioxide removal, CDR. So tell us a little bit about the scale of CDR that is being sort of proposed here in this scoping plan. So carbon dioxide removal is a very scary monster that is coming to take your children away. Uh, and you should, <laughs> I, I'm joking because it's this, I've been working on carbon dioxide removal pretty hard for the last couple of years. And people say, why are you wasting your time on that? Um, we need to cut emissions and, and deploy solar and wind and efficiency and storage and EVs and build the national grid. And those things are all true. One of the reasons I focus on it is because it's like this perfect prism for refracting all of climate politics into its factional, you know, squabbles. Yeah. Um, and I want to, again, say two things that are almost the polar opposite of one another and both true. There's almost nothing that exists today that's real, that's permanent, that's delivering carbon storage um, that is even remotely comparable to the atmospheric and oceanic consequences of burning fossil fuels. Yep. And we're also going to need way more than, I think, easily a gigaton per year globally. Um, by mid-century. We can spend too much time fighting about those numbers, but it, it needs to get very big very quickly from approximately zero, which applies you know, a very big scaling. And so you can look at any long-term net zero plan and say, there's none of this. It can't possibly be real to rely on any of these carbon removal technologies, which I think is a huge overreach. And you can also look at these kinds of plans and say, wow, you're relying so heavily on like an idea <laughs> yeah, theoretical future technology. Why are you not making equally heroic assumptions about cutting emissions and doing other things? Right, or about the falling prices of solar or the, the falling prices of batteries. Like, if you want to get your heroic assumptions in there, why not make heroic assumptions about the stuff that's actually reducing emissions? So if I told you that, you know, somebody, a big important player had put out a plan that relies, you know, pretty substantially for almost a quarter of its net zero goal on a sort of speculative set of technologies with no detail on what they are, how to deploy them... <laughs> 
and was taking no near-term action and deferring this conversation on the basis of some incomplete modeling, you'd say, that sounds like an oil company. <laughs> and it, it also sounds like, and I, I want to be really clear, I want this to be better, but it, it's also a perfectly fair description of the draft scoping plan. So we have here, this, this is like, a, these are numbers that are, I think are meaningless to people who aren't in net zero land, but we've got some pretty massive reliance on carbon removal, maybe up to 100 million tons per year, assumed by 2045. That equates to something on the order of a 75-25% split, where about 75% reductions in emissions and about 25% carbon removal to get us to net zero. Just to compare this, when people talk about net zero, uh, the state of New York has codified a 2050 climate goal that says at least 85% reduction, so higher than our 75. Is it also proposing to mop up the remainder with CDR? Like, is there a little bit of CDR mop up in in all these <laughs> state ambitions? Yeah, and this is part of, I mean, again, if you think about this from a physical climate science perspective, we don't know how to get everything to zero. Yeah, right. And even just N2O emissions from the agricultural sector, like that alone is reason enough to think about carbon removal. So yes, there's always going to be some, and we need to rip that bandaid off and stop being scared of it. We also need to be able to say that and say when is way too much. Right. You want a Goldilocks amount yep. of CDR in your long-term plan. Not none, but not too much. So New York has very little. It's going 85% reductions at least, and yep. 15% remainder by 2050. The uh, the California legislation that tried to codify our 2045 net zero goal would have said at least 90%, 9-0. And your state, Washington, has a codification of at least 95%. So compare that to the approximately 75, 76% that's in the, the preferred scenario. And that should give you some sense, like this is not aiming for the moon. In fact, this is airing pretty heavily on not cleaning up the mess first. Right. So ironically, Washington and New York have more ambitious emission reduction goals, long-term emission reduction goals than California. California's is, you know, commensurately lower emission reductions and commensurately much higher reliance on CDR. At least in this draft plan. Yes. And that's, I mean, I guess I just want to know why, because, <laughs> you know, like if Washington's setting this goal and New York's setting this goal and all these states are coming along setting these goals, I mean, they feel confident that the technology will be there for those things or at least see a pathway to those technologies. Why is California ending up the most cautious in its long-term plan? Just like what explains that? So I don't want to over-index on the outcome because I think, first of all, it's hard. I think anybody who's closer to putting pen to paper and where the rubber meets the road is, is going to run into challenges that these bills, which are just sort of codifying targets, haven't had to fully address. So I, I want to, on the one hand, defend the challenge here. And on the other hand, the reason that the number comes out so much different in California is that the California regulator did, literally did not include a scenario that resembles any of those others. Mm -hmm. So they didn't even look at like, well, what if we tried to get to where Washington wants to go or New York wants to go? Uh, and you know, they could say, oh, we looked at it and here's why it's not so good. And we could have a conversation there, but just sort of like reforming the cap and trade program, they didn't talk about it. So there's no sort of numerical or analytical explanation for why they didn't do this. There's no modeling of an alternative scenario where there are higher emission reductions. There are four scenarios that are studied, alternatives one through four. The first two alternatives look at a 2035 net zero uh, target, which is 
um, we can get into this if you want, but is is so aggressive. It's you know, it's yeah. I think not a realistic conversation. And I worry that's a little weird that they like why they do that. Well, I worry that this is kind of you know the cynical versions of your Goldilocks story because they picked a scenario that's right in the middle by choosing a couple <laughs> of scenarios that right. you know realistically nobody was going to implement. You choose your ends, and you can determine what your middle looks like, right? And, and alternative four, the one they didn't pick, they picked alternative three in the draft. Alternative four has even more carbon dioxide removal and even fewer emission reductions at the end. So. They didn't study a 2045 target that resembles the, you know, the New York, the Washington, or the, even the proposed legislative California version. So they just literally didn't look. And that's an area where, again, I should mention that the posture of this document, this is drafted by staff after a, a series of public engagement opportunities. It will go before the board of the Air Resources Board, which is the politically appointed decision makers who oversee the staff. And it's one of the things the board could say is, hey, why don't you, you know, include a new alternative or modify one of your alternatives so that it looks like one of the other climate leaders that's out there. So California's released a scoping plan that says very little about the 2030 target, despite the fact that there are extremely well-documented concerns about whether that 2030 target is in reach or whether current policy can get there. It says virtually nothing about that. Then says about the 2045 target, kind of this other magic asterisk, <laughs> like we'll get 75% of the way there and then CDR will, will do the rest. And, and, and as you know, when we talked earlier, you sort of made this point that in a sense, CDR is playing the same role for the 2045 target that the cap and trade program is playing for the 2030 target, i.e. it's just sort of like hand-waving away the remainder without a very close look at how it's supposed to happen. So it seems like this is not a solid basis upon which California can launch its extremely ambitious coming uh, years, crucial coming years. It seems like um, this needs revising. It seems like what you'd want, you know, is a beefed up consideration of 2030 and at least an effort to model greater emission reductions through 2045 rather than so much CDR. So let's just talk a little bit then about the sort of mechanics here. This is a draft scoping plan. There's going to be a public review comment process. And then what happens? In other words, if Californians of goodwill want this to be revised and improved, what should they do? And what is the hope and who has the power to cause it to be revised? How would it all work? I think I'm supposed to say vote in November. Isn't that the standard answer to all? <laughs> get uh, out and vote. Get out oh and vote. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, if, if, if you're concerned about these issues, there is a public comment period open. You can quickly Google the California Air Resources Board 2022 scoping plan. You should find information about that pretty quickly. But the process here is that for the next several weeks into uh, sometime in mid-late June, the comment period will be open, uh, and then uh, at that point, the board will hear the program. They'll they'll hear from the staff about what's in the proposal. They'll start to review feedback, and a number of things could happen. So the, the staff have indicated that they want to see a vote on this program by the end of the year to clear this up and move on to the next priorities. Um, you know, in theory, the board could say, hey, we've, we've heard some concerns here. We think some of these concerns are well-founded. We'd like you to go back and 
for example, include a scenario that talks about deeper emission reductions by 2045 or include more than six pages on 2030 um, <laughs> or, you know, align your planning, say, of the electricity sector to some really great work that's ongoing joint between CARB and the Public Utilities Commission and the Energy Commission where they're, they're trying to grapple, I think, in, in much more technical detail with how to actually develop a clean grid that builds out the energy needs we need as we, mm -hmm. we electrify everything. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe instead of assuming we should expand our gas capacity, which is what the draft plan proposes, Ugh. maybe we should think about like the more careful modeling to figure out what, you know, likely gas prices are going to be in a, in a world that has a war with Ukraine. And does it make sense to build that out right now or not? So the board could provide direction to the staff to revisit. So the board has the power to say to CARB staff, go take another whack at this with these specific things in mind. It has the authority to do that. Yep. They have the authority to do that. That's for sure. And the, the plan doesn't become final until the board votes on it. And so, you know, I think the board's reaction to what happens in, in the next several weeks, month or two is, is going to be really important as to whether this thing gets kind of rubber stamped or there's a chance to align it. And if you were a uh, uh, god king of the CARB board, mm -hmm. those are those the two specific things you would tell them? A, um, tell me something about 2030, <laughs> please reassure me about 2030. And then second, model more emission reductions through 2040. Are those the two big things? Are there other, are there other things you would instruct them to do? I think those are two of the really important things. You know, the, the third I might add is the, is the one I mentioned about, you know, let's, let's really plug into the, the detailed modeling work that's trying to ask what that zero carbon grid should look like, because that, that may be more robust than what we're doing. That may be a way to help us get to the lower emission scenario. But, but I think those are two or three concrete actions that, you know, they don't require you to, you know, invent a new plan out of whole cloth. But I think they'd be really constructive. You know, I'll be honest, the, the, the 2030 question is so hard because we spent five years not talking about it. And that was, you know, frankly, one of the lowest moments for me as a professional is realizing when that deal was done, we were going to lose five years because the technical people could see the consequences and it would take a long time before they manifest. And now the problem has gotten harder, not easier. So I don't know how to solve that. And if you complain back then, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're supposed to let it play out. And like you said earlier, industry can just come in and say, no, we, we, we settled this, right? Like if you're going in and pushing for reforms during those five years, industry just comes in and says, no, we settled this. We got the cap and trade thing in place. We don't need any more of this stuff. So it not only sort of, you not only go quiet about cap and trade, you end up suppressing discussion of other stuff too. And this is why it's really important for other people to pay attention because, you know, I, I'm glad we still have a cap and trade program. I'm, I'm going to try and upset everybody here. Like, it's good we have one. <laughs> it's better than nothing. We can make it stronger. It can play an important role. I don't think it can ever play the idealized role that some academics think it should and industry proponents, you know, cynically use to, to manipulate to their political advantage. But I also think, you know, the sort of emerging leftist critique that all markets are bad and everything is evil is, you know, not particularly helpful on this either. Although I also want to recognize, like, when I talk to my friends in the environmental justice community, they are the ones who bear the brunt of people saying cap and trade solved this problem. Right. And that's real. Because those refineries that the local air pollution authorities are now no longer allowed to regulate because of cap and trade are located in those communities. Yeah, when it comes to CO2, they can no longer regulate them. That's right. So the you know, we've shifted so much attention away from air quality to climate, which is good for climate. And if we could use climate policy to solve both problems, it'd be a win for everybody. But the practical reality on the ground is when we say cap and trade will do more than it's capable of doing politically, we sacrifice both the climate impacts and the political priorities of disempowered communities, 
who you know basically don't get the airtime, uh, and nobody's talking about the local pollution permitting. Are they? I mean, California has a large and robust environmental justice movement. Are they losing their minds in regard in response to the scoping plan? Because it's really like seems like their nightmare for for CDR to be given this giant role and for cap and trade to be utterly unreformed. It just seems like are they on the warpath about this? So I, I want to let the environmental justice community speak for itself on this, but but I think talking to them, I, I learned something a long time ago. You, you might remember the first time we worked together was when you were covering some of my research on how these electricity imports, letting our coal imports out of the cap and trade program, sort of shedding liability. It was called resource shuffling, and it was yeah, yeah. kind of an inside deal to make it easier to meet our targets and potentially lose some some outcomes. And I went from being, you know, somebody who was fairly welcome on the inside of these policy conversations to being told to, to take a hike. <laughs> and uh, I looked around and I realized I w- it was me and the EJ folks. And and I stopped for a minute and I and I listened. And I don't mean that I'm like some woke white climate guy who gets all this, but I mean I, I actually listened to what what are they saying? And it has been striking for all of the criticism that EJ groups get about being, you know, technically unsophisticated about issues X, Y, or Z, and and like. You know, there's no question if you compare a community group against, you know, the world's leading chemical engineer that, you know, the chemical engineer will have more particular things to say about carbon removal. But time and time again, they're noticing process flaws that are designed to shunt the conversation to particular political outcomes. And I mean, they were the first people in the early part of the scoping plan process to say, we can't get anybody to disclose the modeling assumptions. We don't have the capacity to review them or the time. They've given us three weeks to respond to, you know, basically the draft technical analysis and we can't disgorge the assumptions. Well, if there's any community in the U.S. that has good reason to be alert to procedural shenanigans, you know, uh, uh, retrofitted to achieve <laughs> particular political ends, it's it's them. But I think I think we've ignored that in this broader conversation, and you know, I'm doing my part to listen, including when they say things that are totally counterintuitive, because sometimes it turns out they figured it all out. And I'm just really struck by that. I mean, I, I work very recently. There's a story that came out yesterday on the role of dairy digesters and the low-carbon fuel standard that Jessica Fu wrote for Grist. And it was this phenomenally complex piece of reporting. She brought me all these moving parts, and I, I read up and you know, I was fo- trying to follow her at every twist and turn. And it turns out the EJ groups had fully documented it in comment letters you know, weeks before I had come to it. And the number of times that happens, uh, and it's not like visible in the elite technocratic circles, is really striking, and I think I think that's something to reflect on, and, and also to let the EJ groups re- speak for themselves. They have a an advisory committee that has public positions they're developing on this, and, and we should take a listen. Yeah, it'll be interesting when they come out with something. I can only imagine. So, what do we know about the? I mean, in terms of what you can say, maybe publicly, but like, what do we know about the car board and its political sort of uh, orientation? Is there appetite for reform of the kinds you're talking about on the board? I'm hopeful. You know, that's ultimately a question for, for the board members to decide for themselves. But but I think what's been kind of interesting is that, you know, the, the previous chair of the Air Resources Board, Mary Nichols, is a, is a singular figure in climate policy history. And, and I, th- I think it's fair to say during her second tour of duty as board chair under Governor Schwarzenegger and Brown, she had a, you know, fairly clear sense of what she wanted to do. And the agency moved, you know, there was a very clear sense of cohesion around that. And in some respects, the staff are, you know, many of the same individuals from from that era. 
but there's a different board. There's a different board chair. And a, a number of the newer board members have a strong either progressive climate or environmental justice orientation. So, you know, they need to decide what it is they want to do and, and why. And it's not for me to speak for them. But I, I do think there are different board members now than there were five or 10 years ago. And that tension is there. Right. If there were a time to sort of try to insert into the process and change the course CARB is on, uh, the sort of Nichols um, path dependent <laughs> course it's on, it would be now, right? I mean, this would be the time to do it. I don't want to make it into like a personality issue. I, I think the, the main point I was trying to suggest is that for an outside observer to talk about CARB as a fairly singular entity, that was a, a sensible description of, you know, seven years ago. And, and I, I do think that there are important voices that are emerging on the board that may be different sometimes than what staff want and potentially more aligned with, with other stakeholder groups on the outside. I think that's a good thing uh, as, as it relates to the possibility to improve the outcome here. Uh, and not simply set up a, you know, my big worry is we'll have a non-binding plan for net zero that will sort of socialize a very heavy reliance on carbon removal that will socialize not cutting as many re emission reductions as we want and declares sort of in passing that 2030 is solved. And now, you know, does it matter if there's a non-binding plan to that effect? <laughs> you know, you could say, oh, it's just a non-binding plan. Well, what happens when somebody brings that to the utility regulator and says, why are you guys pushing this hard? you know, here's this plan to do even more than you're doing, says we're fine. And I just worry that people underestimate the impact for those sorts of things. And, and I worry it will, you know, underestimate our credibility for doing real actions. And I just want to highlight maybe a couple of things that are going on in the state since we've been really critical, but... Let me just jump in here because yeah. this is sort of my final uh, wrap-up question. And you've touched on it in a number of ways running up to now, but sort of, you know, as you said at the very beginning, as we both said, California is kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the state climate game. And anyone who's paying attention to national politics knows that once again, <laughs> here we are saying, oh, we're going to go to the states. You know, the federal government is going to be lost to us. There's going to be no progress at the federal level. We're going to have to do this at the states. You know, it's just the real deja vu of this conversation. So if that's true, California is the big state actor, the one with, you know, sort of the historically the most ambitions, with the most administrative capacity to make plans and form policies. So just talk a little bit about the implications here of California's success or failure on this larger kind of go back to the state's strategy. So, you know, obviously we need to push at all levels. So I don't want to say, oh, the states are going to take care of it because it's, it's not enough and nothing's ever enough. But, you know, we've got the best of times and the worst of times. I, th I think you can point to some things that are really not working. And I do that a lot because, you know, when they get copied, it screws up other things as well. We're also doing a bunch of things that are working. And I think it's important to, to think about those. I think the potential to go deep on individual sector policies. You know, CARB continues to be, the, the Air Resources Board continues to be one of the most important vehicle regulators in the world. And, you know, we need to be really thoughtful about that as an important focus. Enormously influential, right? I mean, a dozen, whatever, a dozen states follow along? And more than that, I think, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's the only state that can set stricter emission standards for mobile sources than right. the federal government. And, and of course, the right-wing legal machine will attack that and we will, you know, have to defend that. But, you know, that continues to be an important area. 
we really did launch the first large-scale 100% clean electricity policy, our SB100 bill, that you know many states have now copied. And that's been profoundly beneficial. And we have you know, many sector-specific policies, whether it's trying to organize offshore wind, trying to think about the build-out of clean electricity and accelerate the pace of you know, grid deployment and clean energy deployment. There's a lot of efforts to push that farther in the legislature and in the administrative uh, branches. And we have right now a massive budget surplus, uh, a good chunk of which the governor is, is very intentionally directing and explicitly directing around climate parties, right. many of which are great. So, you know, you can see everything when you look at us. And the thing that worries me is we have sold the story that we figured it all out rather than we're one of the places that is doing the most to figure it out. And we will have some wins and some losses. And people who copy us uncritically will miss that. Uh, NGOs who promote simplistic tales of what we've done will sell the wrong story to other people. And we'll also miss the opportunities to move forward in this state. So I'm, I'm actually pretty hopeful that there's a lot of great things going on. But as always, you know, fixing the cap and trade program is one of the hardest ones. And I, I still continue to try and do it. Yeah. And it's, you know, the flip side of cap and trade maybe being uh, weaker or more flawed than is understood outside the state or even understood <laughs> within the state. Um, the flip side of that is just the extraordinary success and power of these sectoral policies, you, you know, and this is sort of conventional wisdom, um, you know, maybe more so a couple of decades ago, but the sort of conventional wisdom in U.S. policy circles is that, oh, we're trying to move away from command and control, you know, overly intrusive, this and that to market-based policies that are less, you know, smaller government hand, all this, you know, very conventional wisdom. I just feel like it's it's so important for people who are following the actual unfolding of policy and the unfolding of emission reductions in the U.S. to just say aloud <laughs> again and again, it is these old-fashioned sectoral policies that are the workhorses, that are working, that have proven track records at this point. Yeah, I mean, if you're an industry that's that's trying to get started, like we, many of us want to start the offshore industry in California. Like, like that's a very good thing. You, you need typically legislation. You need regulatory coordination. You see that, you know, the interest in geothermal development and lithium mining down in the Salton Sea area. You know, it's not a surprise that you see new industries that are trying to create themselves and create the infrastructure around themselves working directly with the government to figure that out. Uh, and of course, it's going to take a lot of private capital and a private sector interest to do that. But it is not a surprise that there's a coordinating role for the government in that work. Right. And there's more to it than just turning up the carbon price dial and hoping for the best. <laughs> yeah. And again, I'm not here to say, like, don't do any of that stuff. It's it's better to have one than to not have one. And the key thing is to realize that it's really hard to turn that dial. And there's reasons not to, especially around affordability, rely on it too much. So tell me where you want that price to be and design a program to get you there. It could be a tax. It could be a cap and trade program that's well-designed to get you to a, a particular set of outcomes. And then, you know, rely on it for that boost, for the revenue it brings in, for the, the little kick it gives to all the sectors it covers. If you rely on it to be this magical thing that will deliver at low cost, whatever you need, no matter when you need it, <laughs> you won't get it. Just right. like if you assume carbon removal will mop up all of your problems, it will fail. Right. You need to build it to be the thing that you want it to be and not rely on it as a crutch. 
So again, I'm not here to say get rid of it or Washington should have a cap and trade program. What I'm saying is Washington is proposing to adopt California's forest offset protocols into its cap and trade program. So all of the widely documented problems in our protocols are planning to be replicated. Why? Right. (laughs) Right. So just a more discerning eye in terms of picking apart what's working and what's not working. Okay. Well, this is super educational. Eat your veggies. Yeah, eat your veggies. And I think it's it's helpful, I think, to get it out there because, you know, things tend to descend into sloganeering. So I think it's good to get it out there that California is both kicking ass and falling short, <laughs> like both doing a lot and really not prepared to accomplish all it says it want to accomplish. We can hold both those thoughts in our heads. Yep. And let's not forget, it's really hard to do any of this and you need experts to do it. And, you know, we, we got to remember some some institutions are really good at some things and some things are challenging to some institutions. And that's, we can't lose sight of that in an administrative capacity issue. Yes, yes. Um, it's at the heart of all of this. You can't just say, oh, industrial policy, but I don't actually have a public sector. It, that doesn't work. Right. Um, you can't say cap and trade and I've, you know, have a monstrous team that's ready to, oh, I don't have a monstrous team. I have a very small team that's you know, going to need to be a taker on a lot of the details. Those are very different strategic considerations. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. This is really uh, clarifying, and uh, maybe we'll uh, you know do it again in five years when the next <laughs> when the twenty twenty seven scoping plan comes out, and we talk about how our yeah yeah that'd be fun. Um, <laughs> thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Danny. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.